Miranda Pacchiana, MSW, is a personal coach, writer, and podcast host. She has spent over two decades addressing and examining family responses to the disclosure of child sexual abuse and is the creator of the online platform, The Second Wound, coping with family while healing from abuse and assault. She is driven to apply the lessons she has learned through the traumatic events in her own life to provide comfort, information, and support to others. She works and lives in Sandy Hook, Connecticut. Please join me in welcoming Miranda Pacchiana to the show. Today, I'm joined by the lovely Miranda Pacchiana. She is the creator of The Second Wound. Miranda, can you say hello to all of our listeners? Hi, it's such a pleasure to be here. Yes, it's such a pleasure to have you on. I'm honestly honored. Can you start by just introducing yourself and your work and how you kind of got interested in the field? Sure. Um, my name is Miranda Pecchiana, and I am a master's in social work. Um, that is my training and my background. And my personal experience is that I am a child sexual abuse survivor. And I've built a platform online based on reaching out to fellow survivors who, like me, found themselves being what I call re-victimized in the aftermath and while I was working on healing from my abuse originally um, and really ever since then by loved ones and people that, you know, we thought would be there to be our support system. Um, and I can talk more about that if you like. Um, and I, I'm a writer. Um, I am a personal coach for survivors and I just wear, I'm a mom and I wear a lot of hats. Yes, <laughs> yes, definitely. Beautifully said, Miranda. I for sure want to talk about the re-traumatization and re-victimization for sure. And it's such a privilege to have you on because I'd say most of my audience are survivors themselves and probably experiencing this more often than not. Yeah, I mean, it really was surprising to me when it happened to me. And as I've done this research and worked and written about it and gotten a lot, a lot of feedback, I have been really stunned to learn how incredibly common this is. Even if you are supported, um, there is usually, you know, a certain faction of people that do treat you in a way that becomes re-victimizing. And it's really, it really does add to the pain of the original trauma in so many ways that reflect that original trauma. So um, I think it's really important to share with people how this often works. It's almost, almost a predictable pattern with some variations, you know, why it works um, this way, unfortunately, and that people who are experiencing it are not alone because it does feel so isolating and often surprising when it happens. Mm. Yeah, it's a rude awakening for sure. And it definitely feels like a blow because the people that you thought would be there to love and support you are now people that are making you even more ashamed of the experience. Exactly. Um, and I will add to that. I have found I get people on, you know, my social media pages and people who reach out to me often who say, my victimization or my trauma has nothing to do with sexual crimes. Um, maybe it's domestic violence or some other kind of trauma or abuse. So it, it does kind of reach anyone, which is really most of us, right? I mean, we've all had some kind of traumatic experiences in our lives. And um, I have a good friend, I tell this story 
kind of often because it's made such an impact on me. Um, I live in Sandy Hook, Connecticut, um, you know, where we had this terrible, terrible school shooting in 2012. And um, I have a good friend who's a dad who lost his son in that tragedy. And he told me that he has learned through his own experience and all the people that we know who've been through similar things that um, he said to me, you know, you can take a legal pad and you can put a line down the middle and on one side list all the people in your life who you're quite confident will be there to support you no matter what when you go through something really painful and all the people who you think won't be there for you. He said, I guarantee you, you'll be wrong 25% of the time in both directions. Mm -hmm. um, and I have, since I've had that talk with him and I have gone through other levels of working through my own trauma, I've really found that to be true. Yeah, I can only imagine, honestly, and it feels so isolating as well, because in your traumatic experiences, and particularly with abuse, is often you feel so isolated, and like nobody would understand. So it's, it's quite interesting, that dynamic of who actually has the capability to show up for you in that way. That's exactly right. And the the shaming aspect of it is so isolating as well, right? It makes us feel unworthy, unlovable. And so we don't want to open ourselves up and, and you know, take those risks. Mm, for sure. I would love to even start very broadly, if this is someone's first time ever tuning in, can you kind of mm -hmm. define trauma? I know it's a very... Uh, it's not very specific when I say define trauma, there's all different types, but particularly interpersonal trauma, specifically around abuse. Can you kind of just paint a picture of what that looks or feels like, even in childhood versus adulthood or any similarities? Well, you know, I would say that trauma is an event or a series of experiences that have a serious negative and lasting impact on us. Um, and they can impact us in all areas of our lives. And with that comes um, symptoms that carry on, you know, long after the trauma happens. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, we're just starting out with our conversation, but the good news is all of these things that we're talking about can be addressed and, you know, they'll never go away, but we absolutely can do a lot to, to heal ourselves and work in community and relationship with other people to make these symptoms better. Yes, absolutely. I completely agree with that. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit also about Let's go into re-traumatization. So I have what comes to mind for me is invalidation, victim blaming, gaslighting. Can you kind of dive into what that might look or feel like even more in re-victimizing? Absolutely. So for a lot of survivors, right off the bat, they are not believed. Um, it's interesting that a lot of people think that that's the worst thing that can happen when you tell. But in fact, a lot of us have been believed. In fact, I would say the majority of the second one followers I have, it's not that they weren't believed. It's that they were treated as though their sexual um, trauma doesn't matter. 
or you're told it matters, but actions speak a lot louder than words. And people, because of their own limitations or their own histories or their own predilections, want to brush it under the rug. And that is extremely painful for survivors because in order for us to heal, we can't brush it under the rug. Um, we're going to experience it either way. We're going to have those symptoms bubble up, even if we, you know, especially if we don't address it. Um, you know, what happens in families a lot, a lot of times with the people that I work with, um, let's say you were abused by someone within the family, which is the, you know, percentage wise more likely to happen. Um, you, would have a very hard time showing up to an event where that abuser is present. It can be extremely triggering. Um, you know, there's all kinds of painful history, their hurtful history. And if you don't want to go to Christmas because that person is there, the family will let you miss out on Christmas. Um, they, they might ostracize you and not invite you in the first place because they see you as a troublemaker which is really ironic if you think about it, because what's more trouble, talking about abuse and assault or committing it? Mm. Um, and in fact, talking about it and addressing it is absolutely vital, you know, even from a standpoint of taking care of the people around us and looking out for other people who could potentially be hurt by the by the people we know have this history, right? Um I would say one of the very biggest problems is that survivors get scapegoated. Um, you know, you're the problem in the family. You're the one everybody doesn't really want to deal with, which might be true <laughs> um, because we're telling the truth. You know, we're like the child at the parade and the emperor's, the story of the emperor has no clothes. You know, we're the one pointing and saying, hey, everyone, something's wrong. Um, and that can shake up the whole dynamic of the group, whether it's a family or, you know, a church community, it can be all kinds of different groups. It's not just families. Um, they will shame us. They will, you know, smear us. Um, smear campaigns are a huge problem and that can take all kinds of forms. Um, a lot of times, you know, my, my clients find out that they're, their loved ones, their close loved ones who even know the true story have been lying um, and saying that, you know, it never happened or it was consensual or this person is mentally ill. That's a really common one. It's, it's a common one to pin on women in general. Um, and maybe survivors do have mental health challenges because of the trauma they've been through. And so that's doubly victimizing. Um, it doesn't mean that we aren't, you know, valuable, wonderful people who deserve to be heard and listened to and treated with respect and love. Um, you know, there's a lot of a lot of different ways that it happens, but I, I would say that covers like the hits sort of the major points that I see over and over. Wow, that is so amazing. You covered all that, and that's so true. I'm even reflecting and curious as to what your perspective on this, because I think a lot of us grew up in such a way where we're forced to be physical or affectionate with certain family members. And 
give that person a hug. No, mom, I don't want to hug that person. I don't care. That's your uncle. That's your aunt. You have to give them a hug. So how do you think families can approach this in a more healthy way and teaching their children about consensual touch? It's so, so important. Um, and yeah, I agree with you. That seems like such an innocuous thing and it's such a culturally, it's a regular thing to do, right? Um, I personally, I have many loved ones who have small kids and I'm always really careful to ask, do you want a hug? Um, and you don't have to give me a hug. And, you know, there are a lot of resources that you can go to, like um, the Mama Bear Effect is a great website. Darkness to Light has wonderful like info sheets. Um, there are wonderful books you can get for your kids, but really it's about starting, you know, from, from day one and normalizing the fact that your body, you have a boundary and you do not have to accept someone touching you. If you're uncomfortable, please speak up. And then you have to follow through and listen to your kids too. When they say, I don't like that, you know, there's certain exceptions the doctor, you know, while mom or dad is present, something like that. Um, but it's really important to fold in these concepts with children, not only about consent for yourself, but touching, you know, other children um, or making them uncomfortable in any way. We need to teach our kids to just have that like ease with the language around respect for each other. Um, and and like I said, I think that one thing people don't realize is that even if you have a healthy, loving family and a good relationship with your child, if a child is being sexually abused or, you know, in some way that boundary is being crossed, it can be a lot harder for children to tell than we might think. Um, they might look us in the eye and say, no, everything's fine. Nothing's happening for various reasons, they might be getting threatened. Often they feel like they've done something wrong and they feel like they might get in trouble or they don't want their parents to know, you know? So for, for um, parents and guardians to have also some more deep understanding about how, you know, human beings work around this topic is very helpful. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, you have to ask in a different way. You have to ask more than once. You have to kind of ease into the conversation. One thing that I like to advise that I've learned from my own kids, especially when they hit like the tween and teenagers, when you come to topics that kids really don't want to talk about. And once you talk about sexuality and bodies at that age, they're usually like, ew, that's gross. Cut it out, mom. You know, um, my trick was always to talk about some story that had nothing to do with them, like something I read in the news or, you know, did you hear this person described what happened to them? What do you think about that? And then you can, you know, say, well, if I were their parent, I would tell them this, something like that. Yeah, that's a wonderful integration because unfortunately, I don't think enough families or people are having that conversation with their kids. And I feel like personally, unless you've experienced it or witnessed it, you wouldn't really know what to look for. So can you kind of right. explain warning signs or signals that might indicate that there's an issue going on? Yeah, they've been exposed to things that they shouldn't have. They might, you know, there might be, they might be touching themselves inappropriately or talking about things and pushing boundaries in general. Yes, definitely. Um, there's also, well, bedwetting is an important one. You know, thumb sucking long past uh, what would be a normal age for that. Um, anxieties in general 
and avoiding certain people saying, you know, I don't want to be around that person. Um, it might sound like it's not a big deal, but then you find out, you know, there's a really good reason for that. Mm, thank you for bringing those up as well. I, I want to kind of touch on something you said in the children feel bad about it. I think for me, that seed that's planted so young from I did something bad, I am bad, can really carry with us throughout adulthood into the rest of our lives where we feel like we are wrong, we are bad. So can you talk about maybe how, when that happens in childhood, how that could present in adult relationships or sexuality as an adult later on in life? Mm, yeah, shame, I think is just the biggest fallout, the biggest symptom and the worst thing that we carry with us when we're abused as children. Um, because, and it's so insidious because shame is, it's different than feeling like we did something bad. It's actually, I am bad, right? Um, and it's so destructive. There's nothing about that that is useful in any way. Um, and yeah, when we mature and are in, in relationships, I think that it's very hard for us to open ourselves up and trust um, because we're afraid that we're going to be rejected because feeling shame is feeling unlovable. It's feeling like you are a person that can be easily abandoned. Um, also, it can make it very difficult to hear when someone you love needs to express themselves to you. And we all have to do that in relationship and say, hey, you know, I just need you to do something differently. Or when you did such and such, it hurt my feelings. We all have to be able to hear that and respect that in people who care about. It can be really hard if you're filled with shame um, not to just push that away and get defensive and be unable to hear the person who's talking to you. Um, so those are just a few things, but it is really insidious. And I can tell you from experience that you really can make a huge dent in it, that it really is something that you can rid yourself of at least mostly, if not completely through, you know, through hard work and time and just like we are hurt through relationships, we heal through them. Um, you know, for me, it was years of therapy with a really wonderful therapist who I clicked with, who understood me, who thought the world of me and in some ways reparented me mm -hmm. and, and gave me the things that I'd never had. Um, you know, just the first two or three years working with her made, made a huge difference in that for me. And um, having, you know, I was fortunate to find my husband fairly young and have a really solid relationship with someone that I, I can trust and who supports me. That's really just huge. Um, and um, just what was the other thing I was going to say? I just lost my train of thought. Um, oh, I know. It's that I think that being in community is also really important for dealing with shame. Um, you know, having friends and, and any kind of community, whatever kind of group that you, that you fit with, 
Um, especially if you're able to talk about what you've been through to some extent. And I can just tell you from experience that um, I've been in several support groups over the years, you know, some less formal than others. Um, and it really was sort of a life-changing experience for me when I was early on in my healing, being in a support group that was just women with, you know, issues of anxiety, et cetera. Um, and some of us were survivors and some weren't. And that was the first time I really started to tell people my story outside of my very close inner circle. Mm -hmm. And there was something about having them know what I had lived through and not see me any differently. I could see that reflected in them. And that was just life-changing for me that they were like, oh, Miranda, you're just still Miranda to us. You know, um, we know you for who you are as a whole person. And this is just something that happened to you. It doesn't make you shameful. It doesn't make you dirty. It doesn't make you abnormal, which is how I um, internalized what was happening to me as a kid. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my therapist was wonderful, but she couldn't replace that experience for me. Wow. That's so powerful. And I completely agree. The empowerment feeling of reclaiming and reframing with that, that what was done to you isn't who you are. And it's really important to make that distinction because when we receive that support from other people, some sort of like unconditional acceptance, we can feel really safe with them. And I think safety is really imperative to healing as a survivor. It's, it's really very imperative and it's hard to achieve, you know, we may never get it completely. Um, but it's, it's something to be aware of and something to work toward. And, and again, we absolutely can make a difference in it. Yeah, for sure. I completely agree. And I, I loved what you were saying with, um, in, in adulthood and, I'm so happy that you are blessed to have found someone that makes you feel so supported and comfortable. And with that being said, can we talk about self-preservation and trauma responses in relationships, whether it's a result of trauma and abuse or not? But I, I feel like, at least I'll speak personally for me, more often than not, it's stemmed from the trauma and the abuse, the self-preservation and the trauma responses. So can we touch on that and what that preservation might look like? Yeah. Can you just give me like a little clearer um, understanding when you say self-preservation about yourself, what you're referring to exactly? Oh yeah, absolutely. I think <laughs> um, at least for me, I find as you were talking about before that being able to hold space for someone else's needs while communicating our own can be super hard already, but add layers of abuse and trauma on top of that makes it feel nearly, it feels impossible sometimes. So for me, the way that it's manifested in relationships is um, having a hard time distinguishing those boundaries, at least for myself, it could appear as overgiving or people pleasing, accommodating, it could appear as um, stonewalling or avoidance, or perhaps some sort of sexual withholding because not being able to realize that sex can be a loving act. It's something that's either done to me or I give to get something in return. So at least those are some examples that I've personally experienced myself. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I mean, those are good examples of the ways that our trauma carries into our relationships and it, it, there's no avoiding it. 
that is going to happen and it is different for everyone. Um, you know, I would say maybe what all of these types of issues have in common is to some extent is trust. It's a really big, big issue when you've been violated, you've been used essentially, um, and you know, your body and your autonomy and your boundaries have been disrespected. Um, and then in the case of the people that I work with in my own experience, there's then the added layer of um, not being heard that that happened to you mm. and not being, you know, loved and protected the way that we deserve. So it's really, um, it's really big and it does, it's going to carry into your other relationships, especially the really close intimate ones. Um and I think being aware of it is really, really important. Um, but yeah, you know, we were talking a little bit um, about, you know, something that you'd mentioned on another episode of your podcast about the idea of like when we've been in relationships that aren't as healthy or maybe there's abuse that we, when we get into a relationship that's more stable, we might stir things up out of boredom is what you had mentioned. And, you know, I, I was saying to you that I think often it can have a lot of other reasons behind it. It can feel unsafe when things are sort of quiet and stable to us. And I think especially when you have had to be on your guard to protect yourself, you've had to use that as a coping mechanism that did help you cope. You know, how do you just leave that behind? Um, when you're in a relationship where you have to, again, be close to someone, be trusting, be intimate, let your guard down, you know, you can have all sorts of intrusive thoughts. Um, will they, you know, cheat on me, for example? I mean, that's, you know, that's one common thing, but it's more extreme, but it can also be much smaller things. You know, are they really hearing me? Um, I asked, you know, my partner to make sure he washes his dishes better and he didn't do it does he even care about me at all right and it things can feel bigger than they are not because we're drama queens but because we come by it honestly and so if we can look at that and be aware of it and then try to work with it and around it um and hopefully we'll be with someone who can under you know be understanding and we can also give to them and understand where their blind spots and shortcomings are because we all have them and we're still lovable. Um, and, you know, it does help to make it clear in the relationship when things come up that some of this comes from what my therapist sometimes calls my trauma brain. You know, my brain can go to danger, danger, danger. Oh, my God, I'm getting all kinds of autonomic reactions when most people wouldn't think this is a big deal. But that's my trauma coming back up and we all know it. And so let's just take a breath and, you know, understand that maybe we have to be a little bit more patient with me right now. And also I can be realistic about it and not, you know, sink into it and let it carry me away. Thank you for saying that. I really needed to hear that. And I'm wondering, 
what would you say to someone that has expressed this to their partner, but their partner is less than compassionate and says, well, you can't use your trauma as an excuse? Uh, what do you think that person, because I feel like for me, the invalidation, the self-blame, the guilt, it goes back to what we were talking about before and learning to trust not just others, but ourselves as well. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's tricky because, you know, we're, when we're in relationship, that person comes in with their own history um, and their own scars and wounds and maybe experience of not being heard. Right. So, and that, that's not an excuse either. And we're not talking about using trauma as an excuse. We're talking about being aware of it and seeing where it fits in. Um, and you can take responsibility for, you know, behavior that you feel wasn't um, respectful or productive and understand that it came from your trauma and that you're going to work to do better. Um, but, you know, I guess it's hard to answer that question globally because it depends sort of on the person's personality, but you know, you could start with tell me more about why that feels like an excuse to you and what your experience is. And when you give someone their voice and a platform to describe their experience, especially if you guys have practice with doing it in the most respectful ways, which is, you know, when you did such and such, I felt such and such not, you know, you always blah, 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 and it's terrible and cut it out. That's not going to be as productive as that. It's going to be hard to hear. Um, so, you know, if you can create a dialogue around it and, and both try to hear each other, it's tough though, because, you know, these are, um, that's like a really activating thing to hear. You're using your trauma as excuse, as an excuse that would be upsetting. And so, I would say, you know, you could, you could explain to your partner that that's an upsetting thing to hear and you don't feel it's accurate. However, you'd like to open up the discussion and try and both hear each other and what it feels like when those conflicts happen mm. and how you can do better. Yeah, noted. I think everyone at the end of the day just kind of wants to feel seen and feel heard. And one of the most hurtful, I think painful sort of, um, hampers on connection is feeling like someone's invalidating you a hundred percent and especially when you come from backgrounds like we do mm -hmm. um I have a friend who said to me one day when I was describing a conflict I'd had with someone oh Miranda needs to be heard everybody needs to know that if you know Miranda she needs to be heard <laughs> you know it's like everyone does you're right for me it's like a trigger when I feel like someone dismisses me the worst <laughs> yeah it's so yeah. activating when people negate our experiences exactly <laughs> exactly and and like as I alluded to earlier re-victimization is in many ways a repeat of certain aspects of abuse it's like you're being overpowered you know you're being made made small um and those feelings are so deep within us that to have them repeated is, is just extra painful. And for some people, the re-traumatization is worse even than what originally happened. 
especially because it can go on and on because it, re, you know, it mirrors the abuse. Um, and it can come from, you know, people that we really thought would never behave that way. Mm. Preach. I think also feeling out of control is really upsetting and scary as well. And that doesn't need to even look physically out of control. It can feel out of control in a relationship emotionally as well, or just feeling like someone is abandoning you or there's aspects of that abuse that are more mental in the re-victimization even. So it's important to also just have insight onto what those are. And I think establish ways that you can validate yourself even or hold your own hand and befriend yourself in those situations. Definitely. Yeah. And abandonment is, is, um, runs across a lot of this. And again, it's, it's really, really deep and really painful. And, um, you know, we carry it with us and again, we can shrink it down, you know, like with any trauma, it's never going to go away, but it, it sort of shrinks and, expands and we can have some control over that Mm. but yeah I absolutely agree with you control is a big one and if and maybe you know in an argument when you feel like it's starting to spiral and you know you're being activated your partner's being activated in their own way and you're you're coming up against each other neither of you are hearing each other that can feel really scary and that's that's when it's time to say to each other I I don't want it I don't want to do this to each other. So let's take a beat. Let's take a breath and step away and we'll come back again. Mm. But let's just step away for 15 minutes to, you know, calm down our nervous systems because I know we want to hear each other. Interesting. I think that's a great tool. I've learned that in couples therapy as well is learning to create the space for when you both feel emotionally ready and uh, capable of having the hard conversation is really crucial. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And also, um, when, you know, if we do need to take a breath and step away to say, I'm doing this, it's only time, it's only for a little bit, you know, I'm not leaving you. I'm not, mm. I'm not rejecting you and walking off, even though we might feel like doing that because we're ticked off and we're, we've got our adrenaline pumping, you know? Yeah. Rejection is, is also a big one. I think even when you brought that up, I felt guilty because I was like, he says he needs a break from the conversation, then I feel rejected. And, and I think it, it, again, it goes back to that deeply ingrained um, self blame and that guilt that we're bad. Exactly. And if you're bad, you can be abandoned. If that person says, I can't deal with you right now. Well, that's exactly what that feels like. Yeah. Um, But you know, there are simple ways, like I said, you know, you can plan ahead of time to say, if you could just say, I'm, I'm stepping away because I love you and I want to do this right. Yeah. You know, we could both say that to each other even, Mm -hmm. even better. The reassurance (laughs) so that the other person doesn't feel unlovable. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Because especially when you've lived through trauma, I think that, you know, we can go from fine to activated and scared. Yeah. Um, pretty fast when things aren't going right. And it's because it's an old wound and, and it's still in there. Um, but 
it is also our responsibility to find ways to take care of that in our relationships and in life and do our best. And we're not going to be perfect and that's okay, but, but we can keep growing and learning. And I still, I'm still learning and growing around these things all the time. And I hope I never stop. Yes. Ditto. I think it's something you brought up the nervous system before. And I think a common response is hypervigilance or a dysregulation of emotions. So for me, it's been so helpful to kind of step back and learn to self-soothe through whatever you like for self-care, journaling, going to therapy, taking a walk, just feeling grounded. Absolutely. It's so important to do, you know, hopefully even every day a little bit. For me, walking is a big one. Um, If I'm really upset, I'll, you know, I'll do tapping to calm down. Um, I I could list 10 things, but you know, if you have your just like go to two or three, like you just mentioned, that's really great to know that you can fall back on that. And, and it really can help pretty fast too. You know, your nervous system can calm down pretty quick. Um, once you give it that opportunity. Yeah. Finding what works for you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So what would you say last question here to wrap up that someone can do if a loved one, a friend, a partner has experienced trauma and abuse, what is a way that we can support each other? Well, um, I think that we could go back to what we were talking about in terms of listening, listening and learning. And just like we have a lifetime of learning to do, there's always more that we can understand about each other and how our scars shape how we respond and how we behave. And um, if it can become a dialogue between you, and so you can continue to be aware and involved and supportive and patient and understanding, that would be ideal. (laughs) Yeah, aware, understanding and empathic, I think, and just listening, not having to solve it, not obviously negating their experience and just being there and a safe person for them to feel comfortable with and feel held. Yeah. And I think that um, it's important also to point out because I think it's a natural impulse to kind of want to say, you know, but look at it this way and it might not be that bad. Um, You know, that really does come from a good impulse and it's not necessarily something you can't ever say, but really what people need and want is just to be heard. And like you said earlier, to be seen and heard is so comforting and calming that in itself, you know, I remember when I was in social work school and I originally worked with children. I know I said I I don't work with children now and I haven't in the sexual abuse area very much, but that was my original focus. I love kids and I, I would do play therapy with children and in my field placement. And what was fascinating that you would find was that just carving out a little under an hour every week to spend time with a child and let them say and do whatever they want and play and have you, you know, observe and comment and repeat back what they said, kids would start to get, you know, their behavior would start to improve, their symptoms would start to improve simply from that before they were even ready to tell you anything. And I think that, I think about that a lot because, 
I think we all can look back and, you know, remember a time where we just had someone we care about just sit with us and say, wow, you know, that I hear that and I hear how upset you are. And I'm, I'm just witnessing and I'm here with you. Yeah. The freedom to be ourselves is truly so healing. That's true. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Thank you, Miranda. You're so, you're so intelligent and also so kind. So I, I'm really happy that we got to have you on today. Can you tell everyone about where they can find the second moon, where they can seek out your work and connect with you? I would love to. Thank you. And yeah, and I just, I love the work that you're doing here too. It's a wonderful service. And so it's really my pleasure to be a part of it. Um, So my website is called the second wound. It's secondwound.com. It's called the second wound and it explains, you know, all the things that I've talked about here today are explained in detail. I have a blog on there. Um, There's information about coaching. Um, And then I have my social media platform, which I'm very active on. I get a lot of responses on there. So it's on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And, you know, you can find the links to it on my website. Um, You know, look up Second Wound. It's not not hard to find. Um, And I'd love for people to come, you know, find my stuff and and chime in and and, um, support each other and hear what we all have to say to each other. Because I think that it's so important to know that things that we feel and experience not only are we not alone, but sometimes we don't even know exactly what it is that we're experiencing and we don't know how to put it in context. And that's what I try to do with my social media platform is to kind of point out that this is what is happening, even though it's confusing to you, it's actually this. Um, And I think that is why people keep telling me that they find it so valuable for what they're going through when they're feeling isolated. Yeah, wonderful. It's a beautiful community. And I know this episode and your work is going to help numerous people. So I'll link all those stuff in the show notes for people to find you and say hi. Thank you. And I forgot to mention, I have a podcast as well. I I um, have not been regular with the episodes, but they are all on. Um, it's called Truth and Consequences, Navigating the Aftermath of Trauma. Hmm. And it does have its own website, which you can find through the second wound. Um, and you can hear all the back episodes. And I do talk to a lot of survivors, but also other areas of trauma as well. Mm, Very cool. I love the name. Thanks. (laughs) That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Miranda. Again, I really appreciate your time. 